If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. <laughs> This is the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. One thing we should never do is take Christmas for granted. It's just too important a holiday. It represents the birth of Christ, and for more than 2 billion Christians in the world, it's kind of hard to beat the importance of that. It's also a day of peace on earth. Well, it aims to be. And goodwill toward men and women. Well, unless somebody mentions politics. And gift giving. And radio stations playing Mariah Carey. Till you want to scream and hey did brenda lee just have a number one record at age 78 well yes she did that has always been how we think of christmas for the last decades but has this always been the holiday as it is bruce david forbes wanted to find out an ordained minister in the united methodist church and a longtime professor of religion at morningside college among his books christmas a candid history good to have you with us happy holidays to you Happy holidays to you. Good to be with you. Okay, so obviously there was a time in history where people weren't on Amazon deciding what to get Cousin Dave or on Facebook deciding whether he even still liked Cousin Dave, but was this always anything like the day it is now? Oh, there's so many differences. And the biggest surprise is the Christians in the first three centuries didn't even have an annual celebration for the nativity of Jesus. So how's that for a big change at the start? We developed it later. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine early on, since theologically, what would be important about the day is why Christ dies and what it means to Christians. So I imagine Easter was probably the big deal in terms of being observed. Exactly. I mean, I think people now think of Christmas and Easter as the two major holidays. And for the early Christians, it was Easter, Easter, Easter. It was all Easter, which also means that in terms of celebrations, it, it had to be very, very different even early on. Yes. I mean, I th think obviously they 
uh, would think some about the nativity of Jesus, but the focus was elsewhere. And it's only in the 300s for other reasons that they say, oh, the nativity should get attention too. Okay, when you say for other reasons, what happened then? What happened in the 300s? Was this about uh, Christianity being represented now as as an official religion by political figures or like, well, Constantine, of course, about that time, or what? What changed? Right. I do think that the change from an era of at least sporadic persecution to now acceptance by Constantine, uh, that's part of it. It's, to be honest, one of our big problems is we only can guess because I wish there was some document by a pope or an emperor or someone who said, okay, this is why we're going to start having an annual celebration for the birth of Jesus, and this is why we're putting it where we're putting it, and we have no such document. So we just have to kind of guess around the edges. And I think it's partly because Christians, no longer so persecuted, started arguing with each other and some said Jesus became divine later in life, like at his baptism. Some say he always was. And to deal with the nativity kind of helped be part of that argument. Now, December 25th, we should deal with, because that may not even be that close a call as to when he was born. I've heard some theologians say around when we mark Easter, ironically, is probably closer to his birth, and that 4 AD or 6 AD is probably closer to his birth year than 1 AD. Right. Yeah. In terms of month and day, of course, biblical materials do not tell us. And really, there is no consensus. A lot of people say the date probably was in the spring or whatever, but we have no consensus on that. So it it probably was not December 25th. And uh, why did we do it then? Here's what we do know, is that in that period of time, the Romans, and of course it's in the era of the Roman Empire, Romans had three big winter celebrations going on. One was the Saturnalia, which was a harvest festival in mid-December, and it was wild. They also had a New Year's celebration that lasted for five days, and it had all kinds of things going on. And in the between that, at the sum, uh, winter solstice of the time, was the birthday of the sun god, warrior god, Mithra. And And so when Christians started celebrating Jesus's birth, they had to know that they were doing it in the middle of these three midwinter celebrations. And I don't know, I mean, shall we guess here? Were they trying to hijack the popularity of these? these? Were they trying to make them more calm or were they uh, just going to compete? I don't know. Well, does that, how does the change in calendar come into this? Because we're not using the same calendar as they did in those days either. Right, right. And, and of course, the winter solstice now, for other reasons, even the change of calendar is a bit different. It's now the 21st. Uh, so there have been shifts. That gets <laughs> – every time I just try to describe calendar issues, I just say in my own books, I say, I'm just getting dizzy because it's hard for me to follow it up. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. So – the Christmas tree, the wreaths, and all of that that seem to be more part of a winter holiday than a religious celebration, that gets mixed in because Christmas kind of ends up associated with these past pagan holidays? Right. And, you know, one thing that I've, uh, kind of a little theory that I've developed since doing the Christmas book is that I would say a lot of holidays, including Christmas, are like three-layer cakes. That, first of all, you have seasonal celebrations that make sense. 
You want to party in the spring when you survived winter. You want to party in the fall for harvest and the rest. And in the middle of winter, because it's hard to survive, you'd like to party there too. So first of all, human beings in cultures kind of way back in prehistory have had seasonal celebrations. Then what happens is a religion or a nation comes along and adds a celebration on top of the seasonal celebration. And that's what Christians have done here is they've added it on top of what people were already doing for winter. And if you think about a winter celebration, what would that be like? It would feature lights to push back the darkness. It would feature evergreens. Uh, that looks something looks like it's still alive when it looks like everything else had died. You'd want to get together and party because winter isolates. All of those are aspects of winter celebrations. And notice, I've said nothing about the a baby Jesus there. Those are just things to do in this season. And then Christians come along and add this. And so when they move from the Middle East into Western Europe, and they bring Christianity and the Christmas celebration with them, all those people already have winter parties going on, and so those get absorbed into the Christian celebration. I'm sitting here thinking about how different than Christmas celebrations might be if Bethlehem had been south of the equator instead of north of the equator. Right, <laughs> exactly. And But because it was north, I mean, one of my favorite images, I say Christmas is like a snowball. I don't mean one that you throw, but when you roll to make a snowman or a fort. And so as you roll along, you pick up things and it changes shape and so on. That's how you, you started out with this Christmas tree. That's how we pick up a Christmas tree. It was already part of a midwinter celebration, but especially trees were important, especially in Germany. And so Christians in Germany had Christmas trees, spreads to England, spreads to the United States. And so I'm thinking about, okay, the Christmas tree and the traditional shape of the Christmas tree, which is, you know, triangular. That may not be what we get off the lot when we buy a tree or <laughs> how the plastic looks when we get a tree online. But, but still, that is kind of the classic shape. And is there a, a reason for that particular shape? Well, I, I mean... I think belatedly, then Christians add justifications to say, this is why this is a good symbol for us. And repeatedly, people said, well, that represents the Trinity, which, of course, it can. I mentioned earlier the Roman Emperor Constantine, who became the first political leader to accept Christianity and kind of threw off, you know, maybe that's how the Roman winter holidays get mixed in with celebrating the birth of Christ for people who do not have a background in Christianity, history, or theology, can we just kind of briefly explain the importance of Constantine in to the celebration of any or all of this? Yes, it's, it is very interesting because uh, I, sometimes Christians exaggerate the uh, persecutions, but they were persecuted in early Roman Empire in their early existence. But the first person to at least have a measure of toleration was Constantine. And although he didn't get baptized until the end of his life, his mother was a, a Christian and so on, he thought that Christianity would be able to unify his empire. And once it got started, uh, the, he found out that the Christians started to argue with themselves about what to believe. So he actually, you know, helps cause a, call a council. I think this is a maybe a satirical way of uh, talking about it, but I think he kind of said, listen, I'm going to lock you in a room and until you agree, I mean, you're not helping me here. Hang in, we've got more of the Candid History of Christmas from Bruce Forbes here on the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio.
We're back with more of the holiday special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. I've been getting a candid history of Christmas from Methodist minister and longtime professor of religion at Morningside College, Bruce David Forbes. One of the things that we have, which does not happen with, you know, Good Friday and, and Easter and all, is that this holdover of some aspects of this holiday from the winter pagan celebrations when you hear Christmas songs on the radio, you know, much more of that is about making love in the snow and all of that than anything actually related to the birth of Christ. So we've got this interesting duality going on with this holiday that, yes, there are religious celebrations, but yes, there are these things that have absolutely nothing to do with what the day is supposedly about. Yes, but often very much to do with how you could survive winter. Yes, Yes, which again, south of the equator must lead to a great deal of confusion about all of this. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's, and so you see Santa Claus images sometimes, you know, on a beach behind, uh, below, uh, underneath palm trees, et cetera, et cetera. Once you get out of the Northern Hemisphere, it all is pretty different. So was gift giving to mirror the wise men? I mean, if a kid were to get frankincense instead of a video game, they might be pretty well put out. But, but still, is that where that comes from? Well, I think we say that it's rooted in the gifts that the wise men brought to the manger, but I think it, it's we need to understand that it's a fairly mo- modern phenomenon about how centered on gifts it has become. I mean, the, the early centuries, if there were gifts, they tended to be more token gifts, and often the gift giving, this it gets down another road, was really on St. Nicholas Day, which was December 6th. And it wasn't so much on Christmas. And because of later developments, the gift giving from St. Nicholas Day gets moved to Christmas. And then it does for, again, a whole bunch of separate reasons. It expands and expands. I mean, one of the interesting things is when the Christmas tree comes from Germany to England and the United States, at first, the Christmas tree is on a table. And and so the gifts are hanging from the tree or sitting on the table. It's just not this mounds of presents that we have now. And you see, you know what's happened now. We need floor to ceiling trees because we have mounds of gifts in order to exchange. That's pretty, that's a development uh, since the 1800s, I would say. So how does St. Nicholas, and we've talked about him in years past in this special, but we're not otherwise talking about him this year. So let's let's do that. How does St. Nicholas, who now is referred to by people as Santa Claus, become as intrinsic to this holiday? Well, to some people, even more so, especially non-Christians who still kind of celebrate the season and the holiday, becomes more intrinsic than Christ himself. Yes, <laughs> it's and this is a long story that we probably shouldn't go into in detail. But so Saint Nicholas, who was we it, mostly what we know about him is legend, not necessarily history. But he apparently was a bishop in uh, what's now Turkey in the three hundreds, and he became known as a gift giver, uh, but also also a protector of children, protector of all kinds of other people. Was very popular in Europe, and. The way his tradition comes over to the United States is mainly through the Dutch, and it's mainly through New York developments, because remember, New York was first New Amsterdam. And uh, it's really a story of this St. Nicholas tradition morphing. In, in my book, I try to put it in like three steps, or uh, six steps, so that uh, it changes a little here and a little here and a little here, so that this bishop, uh, who wears a bishop's robes, 
uh, in, for instance, the story, a story of Washington Irving becomes a, a guy wearing knickers flying through the air on a, a, a wagon pulled by a horse. Uh, but he's doing this on December, on December 6th, St. Nicholas Day. That's a change from then you get to the poem, The Night Before Christmas, which was not telling us about what people already thought about St. Nicholas. He was developing new things. So we're going to get reindeer. There may be one predecessor who suggested it. We're going to get reindeer. We're going to name them. We're going to have, and we're going to do this on Christmas Eve, not St. Nicholas Day. These things all develop. And by the way, the name, if you wonder, the Dutch name for St. Nicholas was Sinterklaas. And so Sinter, St. Klaas, Nicholas, and it's a very short distance to go from Sinterklaas to Santa Claus. And then you get, you know, further developments where Thomas Nast gives us certain illustrations. It, it all ends up with Coca-Cola and an advertising man named Haddon Sunbum, his art agency, doing these images of Santa that I know that's what we think of when people say that. But it, it morphed stage by stage along the way. If you saw the first illustration published w with the Night Before Christmas poem, it's if I could show you the picture, the way I describe it is he looks like a scruffy leprechaun because really in the words of the poem, He's an elf. Right. It's not just a jolly old elf, but it's a miniature sleigh. It's a, a tiny reindeer. That, that would explain how he could come down a chimney. But anyway, my overall point is Santa Claus gradually, step by step, changes a little, changes a little, until we get now our image of Santa Claus. Yeah, he's, a, he's an elf elf. He's not a Will Ferrell elf. He's, a, he's an elf elf in the poem. I never thought about the about the role that New York plays in this, because Washington Irving, who popularizes to a degree St. Nicholas, New Yorker, Clement Clark Moore, who writes The Night Before Christmas, also a New Yorker. In, in New York, to a lot of you know religious people, probably the last place they think of is having to do with how Christmas right. develops. And, and a famous letter that influenced a lot of people of, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. That's Santa, in many ways, New York it's kind Sun. of a New York creation. That is absolutely fascinating. And of course, a lot of the view that we have of, you know, Santa coming down the streets for some people, it's not just the Coca-Cola, but it's movies like um, Miracle on 34th Street, where he's coming down, you know, Broadway as part of not Christmas, but the Thanksgiving Day Parade in, in New York City. The night before Christmas, you mentioned, gives him a sleigh, gives him reindeer, though he's still called St. Nicholas. But it is interesting because he's no longer dressing like a saint. Right. Yeah, because in uh, see, the first person in this transition was an organizer who nobody has heard of, John Pintard, and I'm not even sure I pronounced his name correctly. He was kind of an organizer in early New York, and he started historical society and chamber of commerce and other things. And he started a St. Nicholas uh, kind of society. And men, these first three people that we're talking about, they're all members of that. So he starts thinking of him as a bishop. And yes, and then it, the clothing changes to put him in Dutch clothing. Yeah, it just keeps changing. Everything changes. 
And I, and I think the role keeps changing. In my, if I go way back, and we don't have time to do that, to talk about how St. Nicholas was seen in the Middle Ages and so on, I think over time, St. Nicholas and Santa Claus have had three different roles. One is a protector, and that was really strong for St. Nicholas. One is a disciplinarian, so that's if you've been naughty or nice. You know, he, he's been treated that way, and that was a lot in Europe also. But the other is as a gift giver. And and as you asked before, why is he so important? Well, as a gift giver, then that hooks into all kinds of commercial purposes as well. Everybody can, can promote this symbol. But it's not just Santa. There are many things that people believe about Christmas, display about Christmas, you know, the donkey and, and all that, that aren't in the Bible, that aren't part of this story. So what got added and how and when? Well, it's, yeah, it, we, our early point was that even the Bible doesn't talk a lot about Christmas or the nativity of Jesus. It talks about Easter, 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 and that's the early Christians. So we don't, we have just bare bones to work with, a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew and a little bit in the Gospel of Luke, and they're not even the same same stories. So we just had traditions that have been built up around it. Sometimes it was cross-referencing with Hebrew scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament. But the wise men, why did they get called kings? Well, that's because there's a cross-reference to a passage in Hebrew Scripture, although I think there it's really talking about Solomon. Um, so we've just added traditions from all over the place, and it kind of helps fill out the story. I personally don't mind that. Um, the, in a way, I think some of the creativity people have had about a, the Christmas story, that's kind of their gift to the baby Jesus. I mean, we all come to the manger if you're a Christian. Uh, the creativity we have surrounding the birth story. Yeah, it, it, when you're asking what's not there, if you notice there's no donkey. Um, that's the, That gets added later. All kinds of things. We don't know, really, we have three wise men. One of them is blacks. They have names. All of that we've added. All it says is wise men bringing three gifts. That could have been two people bringing three gifts or 12 people bringing three gifts. We we have added or filled in the story in ways that I personally love. Just ahead, we'll unravel more of the candid history of Christmas from Bruce Forbes here on the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking about the candid history of Christmas from Bruce Forbes. The Puritans, who we talked about a great deal on our Thanksgiving special, by the way, you can find that as a podcast if you look up CBS News Radio holiday specials and go back and listen to everything about the Puritans. But the Puritans, I take it, being Puritans, probably weren't too thrilled with all this fun and foo for Exactly. And in fact, that's, that's a major part of the story about why the American Christmas is the way it is. So, yeah, briefly, the Puritans, uh, who are a dissenting group from the Church of England in England in the 1600s, they think that the Church of England in breaking from the Catholic Church didn't break far enough. They should have gotten rid of more of the Catholic things so you could be like the early Christians. And among the things that they objected to 
were uh, the celebration of Christmas. The, the reasons for that is they said, well, the earliest Christians didn't celebrate that, and they're right about that. And then they also, I think, just felt there was way too much partying going on. <laughs> you know, H.L. Mencken had this sarcastic comment about a Puritan is someone who some is has the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy, <laughs> which is probably not fair. But they opposed many of these celebrations that you said you just have a day off work and you worship God on Sunday. And so in the Puritan Revolution in the mid-1600s, they temporarily kind of halted the celebration of Christmas. And then even though they didn't stay in control for about 150 years, Christmas was a de-emphasized holiday in England, uh, really dropped out of sight so that uh, gift-giving would mostly happen in at New Year's or other times. Um, and th- it's, it, it's amazing how far it, it went away. In the 1700s, I happened to be a United Methodist, and John Wesley, who's founded our denomination, um, lived in the 1700s. He never gave a Christmas sermon. So to the rescue comes Charles Dickens. Well, three things, I think. Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, Charles Dickens and a Christmas Carol, and Santa. So we've talked about Santa. Yeah, Charles Dickens, he writes this wonderful story, and it's very successful both in England and in America. He is not describing Christmas at the time. He is trying to bring back a Christmas that once was in England. So he's kind of reinventing or reinvigorating Christmas. And I think what's really important here is when he does that, think about the story of the Christmas Carol. It's not much, it doesn't tell you about the baby Jesus in a manger. There's very little religious reference there. And I think a lot of people would say what the Christmas that he helps revive gives us the Christmas spirit. And the Christmas spirit is generosity. And I think Christians can endorse that, but people who aren't Christian can endorse that. So we get a Christmas spirit that uh, kind of dominates the holiday that all of us like. There are other things that we take for granted about Christmas, which obviously weren't always the case. So when did Christmas become so important a holiday that schools and businesses closed? Because I take it during those years that the Puritans were thinking we're all having too much fun or before a Christmas carol kind of, you know, revives it as a holiday that people, even not of an especially religious bent, can take part in. Because there's no point in a Christmas carol where Scrooge you know, has some kind of uh, religious epiphany or anything. It's it's ghost saying he's just being, well, Scrooge. So when does Christmas become so important to holiday schools and businesses close? Well, I think uh, two things happen. One is that um, once there are presents, and I think especially when they're not just homemade, but they are manufactured, uh, businesses take a different attitude toward uh, Christmas. Because an earlier um, attitude of business is kind of like Scrooge, and that is, I have to pay these people for not doing work. Uh, I'm just out money. Once business interests realize that this could be a marketing opportunity, I think that helps this uh, 
just kind of influenced the whole society. And I think it also stopped the arguments where some Christians in the early Americas, some Christians celebrated Christmas and others didn't. I mean, when, I guess the three things I just uh, listed, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, Dickens' Christmas Carol, and then the development of Santa Claus, they helped this become kind of a cultural Christmas that was popular among all kinds of people. And the Christians quit their arguing about it too, and they all celebrated even though they were hesitant earlier, some of them. All of this and more and much more is in Bruce's book, Christmas, A Candid History. Bruce David Forbes, an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church, longtime professor of religion at Morningside College. Bruce, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much for being with us. Happy holidays to you. Thank you. You're listening to the Winter Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Nothing says Christmas like Christmas music. Actually, nothing says Thanksgiving like Christmas music or now Halloween. Radio stations start playing Christmas music earlier and earlier every year. Probably by next year, they'll start on Labor Day and you'll stop wearing white and you'll start playing All I Want for Christmas is You. But why is that? Polls show, though, the country is as spiritual as ever. People day to day are less religious. And yet, Christmas songs are more popular than ever. Joe Bennett's a professor of musicology at the Berkeley School of Music. It's so good to have you with us. What is going on here? I mean, popular music is generally about, you know, people falling in and out of love, that sort of thing. There are a few Christmas holiday songs about that, but for the most part, Christmas music isn't about any of that. Right. There is it has its strange it, it has a strange logic of its own, doesn't it, Christmas music? The, it has lyric themes that we are happy to go back to every December or as you say increasingly every November. And uh, and yet the rest of the year we just want the same old stuff that we've always wanted out of pop, you know, falling in love and dancing is the main two the main two uh, themes. But at Christmas music all bets are off. We want something different out of our pop. Yeah, the interesting thing is that though it is a religious holiday, most Christmas songs are not religious. That, of course, wasn't always the case. And of course, especially in classical music, Christmas music is very specifically religious. Popular songs are about snow and getting presents, and they're loved even in parts of the country where you never see snow and by people who aren't even Christian. Well, right. And I, I think that's possibly due to, you know, an increasingly secularized society. Uh, you know, America particularly is, is a country of many cultures and, and religions. And uh, so I think uh, it's certainly true that we see this in the Christmas repertoire. There's very little of it that deals with the Christian faith or the nativity story that Christians tell each other. It's more about... Um, well, holiday music. Uh, most cultures have some kind of a winter festival, regardless of religion. And I think this is partly, like I say, evidence of the way society has become perhaps less religious generally, partly as a result of it becoming more multicultural and inclusive, and partly simply songwriters want to have a hit. So they want to appeal to the greatest number of people possible, regardless of faith, culture, or, 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 or no belief at all. What's interesting is both how these songs hold up as songs and as musical style. People would not be caught dead these days listening to, say, you know, Bing Crosby singing anything other than White Christmas will put White Christmas on repeat. 
it's just love no matter that the era of his style of singing or this style of writing that kind of song is long past still works yes and white christmas which is from 1942 of course you know how many other songs from 1942 do we still have in annual rotation on spotify you know it's a very small number and as you say bing crosby was a, a singer of his time he had a very specific crooner style that developed in the 1930s as a result of him being one of the first singers to sing quite low in volume and very close to the microphone, which is that famous crooner sound that we associate with that era. But White Christmas, it's it's an extraordinary song. You know, I, I use it in my songwriting classes with my students at Berkeley, and we, we do a lot of analysis of, of it and actually some other Bing Crosby repertoire. It, it's, it's 16 bars long. There's almost nothing to it at all. And yet it gets so much into that tiny lyric and bar count. You know, it has imagery, it has rhyme scheme, it has a beautiful melodic rhythm to it. And it gets all that stuff done in, you know, about a minute. And then the rest is all repeats. Yeah. And it's amazing that that simple thing is what's lasted from Bing Crosby. Crosby actually started out as a true jazz singer, scatting, doing very complex rhythms and things. Those songs are not what he's remembered for at all anymore. And yeah, the lyrics to these songs generally aren't complex either. Mel Torme's Christmas song, which Nat King Cole had a big hit with, which you hear every year on the radio, Spotify, and everywhere else, is just sort of a shopping list of images. And many other songs are just variations of, hey, it's snowing. Right. And uh, and actually, the lyric themes are fairly consistent in Christmas songs over decades. Uh, so a couple of years back, I did an analysis of the top 200 Christmas songs that were streaming at that, at that point in the UK. And um, of those, of that 278, had some kind of Christmas or holiday theme. And I found that, excluding the instrumentals, they broke down into eight broad lyric themes, uh, the, the main one was home, themes of home. That's family, open fires, gifts under the tree, and so on. Uh, being in love at Christmas, that special someone. Falling out of love at Christmas, you know, dumped and lonely. Lots of Christmas songs about loneliness. Partying, dancing and mistletoe, and so on. Uh, a lot of Santa-themed songs. Um, Snow-related, as you say, weather themes and weather-based imagery. And universal concepts of peace on earth. Very occasionally, there are what you might call Christian songs that tell the, the versions of the Nativity story, but not so much in recent decades. You know, songs like A Child is Born and Mary's Boy Child are very much of their time. And I think it's been quite interesting as a, as a musicologist who sort of analyzes these trends in music to watch Christmas song or what I might now call holiday song themes track the increased secularization and multicultural nature of our society. Christmas songs have become more inclusive in recent decades, I suggest. Although some of those timeless hits do exactly the same thing. You know, White Christmas is about the weather and wishing each other a happy Christmas. Uh, you know, same with, um, with that laundry list of images that, you, as you said, in Mel Torme's The Christmas Song. It's simply a bunch of lyrics that put you in that that place lyrically and make you think of those Christmas images that people hold so dear. We were talking about the inclusion of this holiday. Mel Torme, who I mentioned a moment ago, was Jewish. Irving Berlin, who wrote White Christmas, was Jewish. A lot of holiday songs were written by people who aren't Christian. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and we could sit here and go on and on, were written by people who 
for themselves, for the most part, did not celebrate the holiday. You mentioned home being the number one subject. This thing of nostalgia and the fact that these kinds of songs are so strong is really interesting because these songs are loved by people who are nostalgic for things they did not necessarily have. A lot of people don't have happy memories of Christmas. They you know, come from broken homes. They couldn't afford presents. Many people even today find the pressure of buying gifts not a fun thing. And yet Christmas songs are comforting in a way that's hard to explain. Right. And I think they all present the same idealized version of Christmas homecoming. You know, it's it, it doesn't matter what one's own reality was growing up. Christmas is a time or the, the holiday season is a time when people often return to the family home. You know, they see relatives that they haven't seen uh, for a long time, perhaps because everyone's got the same week off work. And uh, so it, it is the most universal theme of that holiday season, regardless of where you're coming from um, culturally or, or regarding faith, that you're um, that you're you're coming back to that, not only to that place, but also implicitly to that time. So we tell ourselves that maybe slightly romanticized story that you know all families get along at Christmas and we shower each other with gifts and we have a lovely time. Uh, and we it's also a curiously analog experience. You know, people don't talk about you know, playing on the PlayStation at Christmas. It's going back to a simpler time, which I suggest is why, uh, along with that early repertoire, the Bing Crosby being an example, that the the time when a lot of nostalgic Christmas imagery comes from is a sort of mid-20th century period, certainly in, in the songs that are targeted at, uh, at the US and the UK market, which is the ones that I've, um, I've analyzed the most. We'll have more in a moment from musicologist Joe Bennett on how Christmas songs are written to make us love them so much in just a moment, right here on the holiday special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the holiday special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we've been sitting with musicologist Joe Bennett from the Berkeley School of Music. So, when we did the repertoire analysis of those top 78 Christmas songs, uh, one thing that we got out of it was a word cloud. So we put all of the lyrics into a big bucket and asked what were the most common nouns that appeared. Uh, and they were as follows. Snow, party, tree, Santa, love, home, and cold. So they're all kind of fairly neutral statements about the season and the coming together of families which I, I think is one of the things that you know all pop music writers want to do. They, they want to be relatable and they want to be universal. And you can't get much more universal than those seasonal themes. We've spent a lot of time here talking about the content of the lyrics of these songs. Let's, let's talk about what there is musically, because you're a musicologist. What do these songs have in common? I mean, I imagine they're mostly in major keys because, you know, it's happy. What kinds of musical things do they have in common? Right. Well, in fact, that is one of the the first things people who study music theory um, kind of... It's, it's a simple rule of thumb in music theory that generally major keys are happy and minor keys are sad. I think a lot of people are familiar with that idea. Uh, in holiday music, that is turbocharged. In the repertoire we looked at, 95% of the repertoire was in a major key, which is a lot higher proportion than contemporary pop, which is leaning more and more toward minor keys, interestingly. Um, 90% are in 4-4 time, which is not that remarkable because most popular music is. It's the most common time signature. Um, a few more of them have a, a swing beat. So rather than that, 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 that in the background, in the 
backing beat, you have a da 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 da, da uh, sort of a shuffle beat, as some people call it, and that's more common in Christmas music that historically than it is in popular music generally. Interesting. Okay, I've got to ask you: Does Joe Bennett have a favorite Christmas song? I really do, actually, but um, I'm not sure how well it uh, it plays in in America. It was a big hit in the UK in I think 1985. It's a song called "Fairy Tale of New York" by the Pogues, and uh, the Pogues featuring Kirsty McCall. And it's a, it's a very strange story. It's it's essentially a conversation between two drunks who are kind of down on their luck in New York, and the chorus is famously, "The boys in the NYPD choir were singing Galway Bay, and the bells are ringing out for Christmas Day," and it's just uh, it, it's it's a really delightful story and a very quirky uh, Christmas song. But in terms of songwriting craft, it's very hard not to stand in awe at the skill that went into writing White Christmas. It is a really remarkable bit of songwriting. You know, like the poetry of Robert Frost, which only when you analyze it do you realize that even though it sounds so simple, it's so difficult to do. If it was easy, everybody would be writing stuff like that. Irving Berlin songs and songs like White Christmas are the same, deceptively simple. And this songwriting craft is just wonderful. And, and by the way, as a final note, in terms of your favorite Christmas song, I'm a huge Kirsty McCall fan, so that totally works for me. Joe Bennett is professor of musicology at the Berkeley School of Music. Joe, thank you so much, and Merry Christmas. Right back at you. Thank you. This is the holiday special from CBS News Radio. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.